Hamlet podcast. Hello and welcome to the second half of our journey through Shakespeare's complete plays, an ongoing project to stay busy during this extraordinary year. I joked at the end of the last instalment that yes, if we were doing all of the plays, we really had to do Timon of Athens. I think it might be the most peculiar and the most menacing play in the folio. As we will discuss, it almost didn't make the cut. I think I saw the play for the first time when it was staged at the National Theatre in London in 2012, in a production that incorporated the Occupy London protests and the recent financial crisis. The play has had a good few recent productions, including one by the Royal Shakespeare Company starring Catherine Hunter in the title role. If you happen to Google Timon, you're as likely to find the meerkat from The Lion King as anything to do with this caustic, little-known play. But it is worth a look, nevertheless. Scholars seem to be fairly convinced that this play isn't complete, or perhaps that we don't have the whole thing, or perhaps that it wasn't even finished. There's a consensus that Shakespeare collaborated with Thomas Middleton, and many believe that the play was abandoned and likely never performed during Shakespeare's lifetime. Considering just how negative and gloomy the play's story is, this isn't too surprising. But maybe there are more pressing reasons for it not having made it to the stage. The earliest known production was in 1761, almost 150 years after Shakespeare died, at Smock Alley in Dublin. As with many Shakespeare plays, most of them ones we have yet to discuss, the 18th century saw a great many rewrites. Things like Timon winding up with a daughter, who he gives away in marriage at the noble happy ending, that sort of thing. Any desire for a revised ending is perhaps understanding, as the play's plot can feel quite unsatisfactory. In a nutshell, Timon is a fabulously rich man about town, and that town is Athens. He throws marvellous parties, he's extremely generous with his friends, and asks for little in return for this largesse, since he assumes that his friends will pay him back somehow if he's ever in need. You can see what's coming, of course. The centre cannot hold, and Timon's financial holdings collapse, and he indeed becomes that friend in need. He reaches out to three others asking for help. They are bemused, assuming that the messengers are there with more gifts for them rather than anything as awkward as a request. Everyone comes back to Timon empty-handed. Contrasting with the glamorous party, complete with a mask of dancing Amazons earlier in the play, Timon now invites all of those false friends to another dinner, and this time he serves them nothing but water and stones. He pelts his ungenerous acquaintances with stones and harsh words, and then storms away, renouncing Athenian society altogether. In the wilderness outside Athens, he stumbles upon a large stash of gold. There's no escaping money, and the misery that accompanies it. Word gets out, and soon people start visiting this angry man in the wilderness, hoping to get some money from him. Timon manages to give it all away again, and when emissaries come from Athens begging him to come back, he suggests that they hang themselves. He writes his own epitaph and dies off stage. Shakespeare had used the landscape outside Athens before. The various misadventures of A Midsummer Night's Dream all took place in the woods outside Athens. 
In that play, the landscape is lush, overgrown and quite ripe with amorous and even sexual possibility. But for Timon, it's a blasted, barren place where he's left frantically rummaging in the ground, trying to find even a single root to eat. Timon's Athens is a much more hostile place. Meanwhile, there are a few other key figures in the play. Another kind of outcast is Alcibiades, whose name is known to some readers from Plato's Symposium. The historical Alcibiades is one of the more colourful characters in Greek history. He changed allegiance multiple times during his political and military career, siding mostly with Athens, but on occasion with Sparta and even with Persia. In Shakespeare's play, he is a military man who operates slightly outside the slick, greasy world of Athenian society. When he speaks up for a friend, admittedly a killer, but one being punished with what Alcibiades believes is undue severity, the Senate determines that he's gone too far, and so Alcibiades is banished. As a result, Alcibiades decides that he will wage war on Athens. His campaign ends just outside the city when he's convinced, towards the end of the play, that he doesn't need to wage a full war, since the particularly draconian politicians will be punished, and that is surely enough. Within this heady, greedy world, Shakespeare needs someone that might raise an eyebrow and ask a question or two, and that role is given to a philosopher, the cynic Apimantus. In the early portion of the play, he attends Timon's fancy dinner party, but he insults his host, proclaiming that all of Timon's friends are only posing, appearing to be his friends, because he has money and it's in their own interest. When Timon goes into exile outside the city, he espouses much of the misanthropic thinking that Apimantus already showed. Rather than becoming better friends now that they are united in their hatred and mistrust for humanity, they have one of the sourest screaming matches in all of Shakespeare, and Apimantus storms away. So does Timon actually have any real friends at all? Only one, his faithful steward, Flavius. Flavius worries that Timon's overspending is a concern early on, and when he goes to visit Timon in the wilderness, he has to insist that actually he has been a faithful friend, he has tried, and that maybe he doesn't deserve the scorn that Timon heaps on mankind in the way he used to dole out presents. Timon's response is kind of terrible. He says he's glad to have a friend, a single friend, but he's still disappointed that the friend is just a servant. Even in the wilderness, where there's hardly anything to eat, it seems that status remains a concern. Remarkably, and quite uniquely, there are almost no women in this play, with the exception of the dancing Amazons, and two prostitutes who have the terrific and appropriately Greek names of Phrynia and Timandra. It's a grim, dark, uncompromising play. The insults are constant, and the characters are mostly quite unsympathetic. At the beginning, Timon's guests don't even have names, they're types. We have a painter, a poet, a jeweller, and so on. Their crafts and their trades, what it is they have to sell, is what identifies them, rather than any kind of personality. The only important names are those that belonged to actual figures from Greek history, taken from one of Shakespeare's favourite sources, Plutarch and his lives. Otherwise, Shakespeare borrows various Roman names. There's a Sempronius, a Lucullus, 
Flavius, as I mentioned, and so on. These are certainly not Greek, nor is really the idea of a senate, but we do get enough of a sense of an ancient world setting. As always, Shakespeare can be relied upon to use a foreign setting to interrogate a contemporary concern. In this case, it might actually explain why Timon might not have been performed in Shakespeare's own time. It's believed that the play comes from about 1608, a few years into the reign of James I. At the time, the economy in London was changing quite radically. It was the beginning of the age of international commerce, and plunder, for want of a better word. Rich aristocrats were being introduced to an ever-expanding array of things to buy from all over the world. For that, they needed money, and so credit became ever more essential as a commodity. The credit market had a boom, and everyone, from the notoriously flashy king downwards, was either borrowing or lending as they tried to keep up. Usury, although terribly frowned upon, was unavoidable. Money was flowing, but it was very much sink or swim in its treacherous tides. Shakespeare speaks to something incredibly human in the play, the ugly truth that money and friendship do not mix. We discuss this to a certain extent in The Merchant of Venice, but here he seems determined to point out that it is impossible to expect that generosity will be repaid. Just because you give a friend something, whether that's money or dinner or art or diamonds, you cannot rely on that friend ever returning it. The way that Timon's friends abandon him is so carefully articulated, I have to wonder if Shakespeare might have experienced this personally. Now, Shakespeare was financially quite careful, careful enough to wind up with one of the most impressive homes in Stratford, but even so, there's no better way to ruin a friendship than to lend some money. In James's London, such a sour play about how destructive money can be and how dangerous credit can be could have been quite provocative, so it's entirely plausible that Shakespeare felt it was getting too hot, and he set the piece aside. The consensus seems to be that it was a collaboration with Thomas Middleton. As a result, it might not have been included in the first folio. Bear in mind that plays like The Two Noble Kinsmen and Pericles were both left out for the same reason. But there seems to have been a copyright issue over who owned the rights to publish Troilus and Cressida, and so that play nearly didn't make it into the folio either. Instead, the plan was to include Timon of Athens, and if you look at the pages, you can see the efforts to make it take up more room on the available pages, since Timon is a considerably shorter play, so there's a lot of white space around the text. In the end, both plays, both of them set in ancient Greece, made it into the folio and onto our reading list for this project. I don't know if Timon qualifies as a problem play in quite the same way. It's not a comedy, and it's not a history, really, there's barely any love and no reunions, so it's never going to compete as a romance. And I don't know if it's even a tragedy. There's no particular transcendence through suffering here. There's a lot of complaining and a lot of arguing, and more insults than you'd imagine a play could even contain. But is it a tragedy? The folio rather solves this problem for us by calling the play The Life of Timon of Athens. Maybe this is a genre we should use more often. A life just like Plutarch did in the material Shakespeare used as his source. As Plutarch tells us, Timon himself was a historical character and became an early archetype of misanthropy. 
as well as his hatred for his fellow man, he's a man of extremes. He's excessively generous at the start of the play, profligate and really quite naive as he showers gifts on his false friends. By the end, he is as passionately hating on his fellow man as his reversal of fortune makes him realise his foolishness. But this is not a play in which he learns his lesson, or learns any kind of moderation thanks to the vicissitudes of fate. As the fourth lord, a great role, no doubt, gets to comment, one day he gives us diamonds, next day stones. There's really no middle ground for Timon. As Apimantus very shrewdly observes, the middle of humanity thou never knewest, but the extremity of both ends. When thou wast in thy guilt and thy perfume, they mocked thee for too much curiosity. In thy rags thou knowest none, but art despised for the contrary. Even though Timon is so vocal in his contempt for almost all of mankind, there have been some scholars who see a parallel with Christ. He's denied three times, he's abandoned, he finds a source of temptation in the desert, and he dies. There's nothing particularly redeeming about Timon's descent to death, and he certainly isn't resurrected. Indeed, the epitaph he writes suggests that he doesn't want even to be remembered. The play has multiple references to cannibalism. There's much language of eating men and drinking and consuming other people, and a sensitive audience member will absolutely hear echoes of the Christian Eucharist. But I think they're there to heighten the sour, cynical mood of the play, rather than to suggest any parallel between the sufferings of Timon and Christ. Only one of them had any kind of redemption. Timon has appeared in literature, railing at man's inconstancy and at his false friends, since ancient Greece. The Greek comic playwright Aristophanes mentions him on numerous occasions. One of Timon's biggest fans was the literary critic G. Wilson Knight, whose most famous work is called The Ring of Fire. In it, Wilson Knight rhapsodises about how great this play is. Have a listen to this. In no other play is a more forceful, a more irresistible mastery of technique, almost crude in its massive architectural effects, employed. But then, no play is so massive, so rough-hewn into Atlantean shapes from the mountain rock of the poet's mind or soul as this of Timon. No technical scaffolding in Shakespeare has to stand so weight and shattering a stress. For this play is Hamlet, Troilus and Cressida, Othello, King Lear, become self-conscious and universal. It includes and transcends them all. I am not sure if I'll ever be quite convinced that the play is that good, but I do think it has much to convey, particularly in performance, in the hands of a good company of actors and a director who can polish up some of that roughness into a coherent evening at the theatre, it is a compelling story. Nearly 50 years ago, Peter Brook staged a production of the play in French as the first production by his company at the Bouffe du Nord in Paris, and the play was a revelation. Another production I would have loved to have seen was the one for which Duke Ellington composed the music. You can still find the music, which is definitely worth a listen. The play was made into an opera in the early 1980s, but if you prefer older music, there's a suite written to accompany the play by Henry Purcell too. Credit, debt, money lending, living beyond one's means, and the danger of losing it all, not to mention false friends, 
don't seem to have gone anywhere in the last few centuries. If anything, it feels like Shakespeare was trying to create a theatrical warning against fiscal irresponsibility and how money and love don't really mix. Nowadays, the really rich aren't even that generous. One wonders what it might take to get the world's real billionaires to give even a little to the poets and the painters. But perhaps that's a conversation for another platform. Timon of Athens may not have been a fully finished text, and it may not have ever been performed by Shakespeare's company. Its major narrative themes both appear in other plays. A great man falls from his position and winds up in the wilderness in King Lear, and a decorated general turns his back on his own city in Coriolanus. And we have both of these terrific plays to look forward to a little later in our journey. As ever, there's a link to the full text of the week's play available on the website, thehamletpodcast.com. From here on out, it's pretty much going to be hit after hit, as we've already gone through the majority of the obscure, problematic and early plays. We'll continue to vary between comedy, history and tragedy, of course, and next week we'll have a look at another life, this time the life of Henry V. If you want a really different but related book to read, you could check out Vladimir Nabokov's Pale Fire, which gets its name from a line in Timon of Athens. I'm always fascinated by the number of lines in Hamlet that give their names to other works of art and literature, but I think this is the only significant one from Timon, and it's a good one, so I couldn't let it go unmentioned. Have a read of it and let me know what you think. In the meantime, stay safe, be kind, if not profligate, and I'll speak to you next time.